Kids, um, you are now dismissed uh, for Children's Church. Um, thank you, kids. Thank you, Elaine. Uh, thank you, choir. Excellent, excellent job. Um, take out your Bibles. Um, turn to Mark chapter 12. Um, we're starting in verse 28, um, page 848 in the Pew Bible. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. Um, we're very glad that you are all here um, with us. Um, it's been a, a few weeks since we've been in the book of Mark. Um, so we're going we're gonna to get back into it and plow through and try to finish this book in the next soon. Uh, that's the goal. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you never know. Um, but in case you've forgotten uh, where we are, uh, we are in uh, the last week of Jesus' life. The, the most important week in the life of the most important man um, who ever lived. Um, it, is, it is Tuesday afternoon. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday afternoon. So we've just got a few days um, left here. And remember, the the, the, the pressure is it's just intensifying, right? These guys are really coming after Jesus. They're, they're questioning him. They're, they're attacking him. They're trying um, to trap him so that they will have an excuse to, to arrest him and to kill him. Remember, he's just been upsetting um, the wrong people. Um, he's been coming the day before. He's, he rolled into the temple in this kind of very prophetic um, kind of move. He flipped over tables. He, he drove people out declaring... Um, that the temple was over and that the sacrificial system was done. And in two weeks, we're going to see him at the beginning of chapter 13. Jesus is going to say, oh, by the way, the temple, the most important thing um, to you guys, it's going to be destroyed. Um, the, religious, the religious leaders, um, they did not like that. Um, they, they had to do something about Jesus. So remember, they, they challenge his authority. They, they, they try to trap him with a political question. What about Caesar and taxes? What do we do? Jesus nails it. They, they try to get him with a, a theological question. Well, what about resurrection? That's, that's so silly. Jesus nails it, right? And now, this morning, they're going to come at him with a legal question. What about the law? Right? That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. And Jesus' response, it's, it's so good. Um, it's so brilliant. Um, I wanted to spend like weeks, like just on these few verses, because there's just so much I want to unpack from these, but we'll never finish Mark if we do that. Um, so we're going to try to, to push through and, and get through them quickly, um, because this is a really important topic, and a very relevant topic, because this passage this morning opposes um, what has become very common in Christian churches today, right? Our dislike of law, right? Well, you know, we hear people saying things like, oh, we don't need law anymore. We've, we've, got, we've got grace. Uh, somebody says, my only law is love. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. Uh, my only law is love. Um, you know, the law, that was Jesus freed us from the law. We don't have to worry about that um, anymore. Right? We, we today, we hold up law in one hand and love in the other, and we kind of hold them in opposition to each other. Right? Only the legalists, only legalists care about, care about the law. That was, that was Old Testament. Right? Now we've got Jesus. Now we've got grace and love, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Law versus love, right? That's how we treat it. But it's just completely wrong, right? And our passage today demonstrates that. Right? We're going to look at it and see how intimately connected uh, law and love are, right? They're the two sides of the same coin. They, they go together. You, you can't have one without the other. But I'll confess that there's just a lot of confusion about the law and how it relates to the Christian life. So that's what I want to look at here this morning. I want to try to clarify um, the law um, and the goodness of the law and how we are to use it. Right? Because Jesus is about to give us our, our two greatest obligations in life. Right? And he's going to do it from the law. Right? So let's look down at Mark chapter 12. Start in verse 28 and we'll go all the way to verse 37. Follow along as I read. This is God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we know and we confess that it is living and that it is active. Um, Father, um, the problem is not with your word. The problem is with our hearts. Um, so, Father, I pray that you would wake us up, um, Lord. I pray that you would wake and rouse our, our sleeping hearts, um, Father, to, to the beautiful truths um, in your word and in this passage. Father, show us um, the two great commandments, Father. But I just pray that you would just show us how to use them um, rightly. And that you would show us just how amazing it is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, focus our minds um, on these next um, few minutes. Father, I pray that I would preach the dying man to dying men, um, Lord, and that you would really um, apply these truths and show us um, the seriousness of, of your word. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, scribe. Right? We, we have Pharisees, we have Sadducees, now a scribe is coming, um, and he's coming to Jesus. He's going he's to question him. He's, he's been impressed with some of his answers um, Jesus has been giving, but don't, don't be fooled. Um, remember, the same story is recorded in Matthew 22, and Matthew tells us that the Pharisees came together again and were like, all right, what are we going to do now? How, how are we going to trick Jesus? So they send this guy um, to come in and to test Jesus, Matthew says. All right, this is another test. This is another trap. And he asks him a question that was of supreme importance um, to, to Judaism at that time. What is the greatest? What is the most important commandment or, or law? Judaism, at the time of Jesus, was absolutely obsessed with law. Right? Rabbis would just sit around and argue about it endlessly. Uh, they decided that the Torah, right, the Torah, is our, it's just our first five books of the Old Testament, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. They argued that the Torah contained 613 different commands, right? That's, there's 613 letters in the Hebrew um, Ten Commandments, so they thought that there were 613 commands um, in the Torah. There were 365 negative commands, don't do this, 248 positive commands, you know, do this. A lot of commandments, right? But apparently, that was not enough for them. Right? Remember back to Mark chapter 7, um, a few months ago, Jesus just jumps on the Pharisees and he attacks them for what he says. He attacks them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they were creating their own traditions and rules and then teaching the people that these commandments and rules were just as important as God's. Right, so if you take all the rabbinic laws from the Torah and then their other holy scriptures, the Mishnah and the Talmud, you get thousands and thousands of different laws. Now, with so many different laws, there was understandably a need for a summary or some sort of distinction between more important or less important laws. Right, rabbis referred to these as the light and the heavy um, commandments. And I think that Jesus actually just, um, agreed with that distinction. In Matthew 5, 19, Jesus, he mentions, he talks about the least of these commandments, right? And in Matthew, right after this discussion with the scribes, now Mark doesn't record it, but in Matthew 23, Jesus just rips into the Pharisees, right? That's just the, the woes, you, you hypocrites, is what he does right after this passage in Matthew. And in verse 23, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So there's a distinction, right? Justice is more important than kind of tithing off of your little spice spinning rack thing, right? There's, there's differences, right? A law is a law. They are all still important, but there are some more important than others. And that implies that there is a most important commandment, a, a greatest law. And that's what the scribe asks. Right? But how is this a test? Right? How, how, how would this question test Jesus? How would this be a trap? Now remember, he's just been constantly fighting with them and opposed to them and contradicting them for the last three years. And they're, they're tired of it. Right? He's, he's a radical. He is a revolutionary to them and teaching all kinds of things um, different um, than they would teach. So their hope in coming to him with this question about the law is that he would then answer with something not from the law. 
Right? They were hoping that Jesus would say something like, oh, just, just trust in me. No, that's the most important thing. No, just, just have faith. No, just love. Right? That's, that's the most important thing. But what Jesus does is absolutely brilliant. Right? His answer is in verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Why is that so brilliant? Because we just read it a few minutes ago. What is he doing? He is quoting, he is answering to them from the Old Testament law. Right? This is not some new teaching that Jesus is coming up with. Oh, here's this, oh, love God. No, he's quoting the Old Testament written a thousand years earlier. And he's quoting something that they would have all known very well and that they would have cherished very dearly. Right? He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 was like the John 3.16 of, of Judaism. Right? They, would have, they would have written it on posters and like held it up at like ancient Near East sporting events you know, whatever, whatever they played back then. Right? They, they recited it twice a day, every day. Once in the morning uh, when they woke up and once in the evening before they went to bed. This was their most important verse. And it's referred to as the Shema. Now Shema in Hebrew simply means to hear. It means hear. It's the first word. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This was their most important verse. And by quoting that verse, Jesus accomplishes a number of things. So first, by answering from the law, he avoids their trap. Right? They were hoping, again, he'd say something like, ah, no, don't worry about the law. That's not important anymore. Just, just love. But he doesn't, right? By answering from the law, Jesus is affirming the continuing validity of the law, right? Jesus does not do away with law. He reaffirms it. He even intensifies it, right? In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Don't think I've come to get rid of the law. So I, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? What's he saying? He says, not until heaven and earth are gone and done, right? And the law will remain. And over and over again, Scripture asserts the importance and the relevance of God's law, even for Christians. But again, I've revealed this power to you before. I have, I have the ability to read your minds like while I'm, while I'm preaching to you. And I, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, right, well, what about faith, right? What about, what about Galatians 2.16? A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What about Romans 6.14? You are not under law, but under grace. Excellent questions, right? You guys have brilliant theological minds. You guys are right there with me, right? And this is the confusion that I want to try and explain. Because those two verses are pretty clear. We're not under law, and no one is justified by the law. But Jesus says that the law will never go away, and in our passage, he is going back to the law to tell us our supreme duty, our greatest obligation in life. Now, that's, that's significant. So, so what do we do with the law? How does the law apply to us today? Right, go back to the passage, verse 29 again. Here's where the brilliance of Jesus' answer really shines. Right? What had the Pharisees done with the law? They were all about it. They loved the law. But somewhere over the years, they had gotten off track. Right? They had gotten the law completely wrong and were using it in a way that it was never intended to be used. And this is what Paul is attacking in Galatians 2 and 3. He's attacking those who rely on works of the law, and those who thought that they would be justified by works of the law. What does that mean? Let's break it down. It, it, it's what we talk about almost every week when we try to distinguish between other religions and the gospel. Right? Remember, right? religion is about what we do to get to God. Right? In religion, you work, you keep the rules, you try and be a good person. If you do it well enough, if your good kind of outweighs your bad, right, God will save you. This is what the Jews were doing with the law. Right? They believed that the law was how they were saved. Right? If we follow the law, if we keep God's rules well enough, we'll be saved. Right? That is the assumption that is underlying the scribe's question here to Jesus. Well, Jesus, what do I have to do so that I'll be saved? What is the most important rule that I have to keep um, so that I can go to heaven? 
But notice, what does Jesus tell them? Right? We, we skip over this. Look, look at exactly what Jesus says. Look at the way it is. Love God with complete and utter abandon. Love God with every single aspect of your being, with your whole self. Love God in everywhere, every area of your life all the time. If you do that, you'll be saved. Whoa, right? Like, are you starting to get why the people at the end of this were just dumbfounded? They had no more questions. They were, they were silenced, right? There's obviously something more significant going on here than we think, right? Jesus just told him, love God with everything that you have without fail, and you'll be saved. But what does the scribe say in response in verse 32? Look at it. He says, yeah, all right. You're right, Jesus, good job. Um, that's exactly it. Um, you know, love God with everything and love other people. And you think that would be enough, right? He agrees with Jesus. Yes, Jesus, your teaching is correct, right? He, he's got it now, right? But what does Jesus say to him? Look at it. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It sounds positive at first, but think about it, right? You catch what Jesus is saying. To, to be not far from the kingdom is to still be outside of the kingdom, to be not far from the kingdom is to still not be in the kingdom. He, he's close, but he's not in. And this, this isn't horseshoes or hand grenades, right? No, just close does not count. Right? He's close, but he's not in. Why? And there are two main reasons. Right? The, the first of which, we'll, we'll, I guess it'll be the second. We'll, we'll come back um, um, to at the end. But the first reason that he's close, but he's not in, is because of his misunderstanding of the law, right? So we've got to get the law right. This is really important, right? He, he's coming to Jesus, looking for the law that he needs to keep so that he'll be saved, right? Jesus is trying to point out to the man that he's asking the wrong question, right? He's, he's trying to make it clear to the man that the law was never designed for that purpose, right? He's making it clear to this man that he can't keep the law, right? When he asked Jesus, what was the most important commandment? What rule must I keep to be saved? And Jesus says, love God completely and perfectly with everything that you have and everything that you are. The scribe should have fallen down on his feet, crying out and begging for the mercy of God. Because that is the point of the law. Right? Theologians generally talk about the three uses of the law. Three uses of the law. Right? The first use is the civil use of the law. Right? This just means that the law is used to restrain evil and wickedness. Right? If you tell someone that they're going to be killed if they do something, right, well, they're going to be less likely to do that something. Okay? That's the civil use of the law. It restrains and limits wickedness and evil. But what we're talking about in our passage is the second use of the law. Right? And this, this is referred to as the pedagogical use of the law. Ignore that word. It's just a fancy word that means to teach. All right? That's what pedagogy is, teaching. Right? So this is the teaching function of the law. This is what Paul says in Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have even known sin. 4.20 says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So listen, the law was never designed to save anyone. Right? It was never the point of the law. Right? The Jews were using it completely incorrectly when they were trying to save themselves by following the law. The point of the law was not to save us. The point of the law was to make it painfully clear that we needed to be saved. Right? The point of the law is not to save us, to make it clear, though, that we need to be saved. Right? Because the law reveals two main things. The law reveals to us the holiness of God and just the, the perfect standard that He holds everyone to. All right, and it also reveals to us our sinless, our sinfulness, and our failure to come anywhere close to reaching that standard. All right, so the law reveals how holy God is. It reveals how sinful we are, and it reveals the infinitely large gap in between the two of us. Right? The law does not save us. It shows us our need to be saved. Right? The law was supposed to drive us to desperation. It was supposed to drive the people to their knees as they realized how sinful they were. The law was supposed to drive them to the grace and the mercy of God because it is only there that we have any hope. Right? The greatest and most important commandment is love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. How's that going for you, by the way? How are you doing keeping that 
command perfectly. Right? Whenever someone comes to me and they're like, oh, you know, I, you know, I don't go really to church that much, but I'm a pretty good person. I do you know, a pretty good job keeping the commandments. I like my parents. Um, I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal things. Uh, you know, I'm doing pretty well. Listen, they're not. They're not doing nearly as well as they think, um, keeping the law. But I just ignore that completely and just take them here to Mark 12 and the greatest commandment. How are you doing loving God perfectly with every single aspect of your being? Because that's the first commandment. Not so good? <laughs> Me neither. Right? Because before I understood by the grace of God what's going on here, this commandment in this passage was very unsettling to me. Very unsettling. I was like the Pharisees. Right? I was implicitly operating under the belief that my salvation, my standing with God, was dependent on how well I kept the rules. Oh, I sin. God's, uh-oh, I'm less, I'm more further from God now. I need to sin a little bit more. I need to do some good things to get back closer and get back in God's favor, right? My standing with God was completely dependent on how well, how well I kept the rules and the commandments. But when I got to this commandment, right, it drove me to despair because I knew that I was failing so miserably. If my salvation is dependent on how well I keep the greatest commandment, then I am doomed. And I have no hope. None of us do. But this is precisely the point of the law. And this is the brilliance of Jesus' answer. We see the same thing happen in Deuteronomy. We just read a few verses from it. If you've ever... Uh, not many people have read all the way through Deuteronomy. All right? it's, it's a rough one. But you should. Everyone should read through it. But if you read through the whole book, it starts to just, Deuteronomy just kind of starts to beat you down, in my opinion, a little bit. You read it, and you read it. And it's just this, you know, we just read the Shema, you know, love God with all your heart and your, your soul and your strength. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I need to do that. Um, and it just keeps getting more and more daunting and difficult. It says, love God with everything. It says, obey God with everything. It says, circumcise your heart. 11.22 says, be careful to keep all the commandments so that it will go well with you. And this just keeps over and over again. Keep all the rules. Obey God. Follow Him. Have a perfect heart. Obey. And you're just kind of like, oh, man. It just starts to kind of build up. And you just, I get to the point of almost desperation at the end of the book. But that's why you've got to read the whole book. Right? Deuteronomy is just absolutely brilliant. It beats you down, and it beats you down, and it beats you down. And then the solution comes at the end. And Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I love this verse. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, just completely solves the whole Deuteronomy problem. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see that? Because that is a really huge distinction. It's obey, 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 do this, love God with all your heart, uh, do all these things, circumcise your heart. But and you're just like, oh man, how do I do this? But then in verse 6, it, it, here's, here's the grace, here's the gospel. God will circumcise your heart. God will do something so that you can then do these things. And that's so big. Right? It's not keep the law so that God will love you. It's God loves you so that you can keep the law. Love comes first. Grace comes first. It is impossible to keep the law, right? Listen, I'm just, uh, again, maybe this is bad pastoral advice, but you cannot keep the law. I'm just telling you up front. You can't do it, right? A, a very infamous man in church history, this guy's name was Pelagius. He argued that God would never command anything that we could not do, right? And many Christians have sadly picked up this argument today, but it's simply wrong, right? You cannot keep the greatest commandment on your own path. You can't do it. You will fail miserably. Right? It's Mark 10, 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And here's the problem. The Pharisees had gotten the order reversed. Right? And we have this same tendency today. Perform well, follow the rules, be good, so that God will save us. No! I'm telling you, you can't do it. It is instead God saves us so that we can keep the law. God comes first. Grace comes first. And this then completely changes the law for us as Christians. Listen, if you are not saved and you're here and you're just, you know, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to, I'm keeping the rules and, you know, following the law and all these things. Listen, you're going to fail. You do not have the power to do it yourself. You cannot be good enough. The law was never meant to save you. Your goodness will never be good enough. But 
if you let the law work as it was designed to work, right, to reveal to you your sin and your need for the grace of God, then once you have that grace, once God has redeemed you and set you free from the power of sin and the curse of the law, then you are now free and able to start following and obeying the law. Once you realize that you can't keep it on your own, but that Christ has perfectly kept it for you, right? then your heart begins to change. You no longer try and keep the law to impress God and to earn your salvation. You now freely want to keep the law out of gratitude and out of a desire to please and honor the one who has done so much for you. I've used the illustration before of the story of a northern man going down and traveling to the south um, you know, in the 1840s or something, in the time, back in the time of slavery. Right? And he goes, to, he goes to a slave market, I think one of the most tragic things in all of history. And he goes to a slave, people are being sold, and he goes to a slave market, and he buys this young slave girl. Well, they, you know, they, they get on their way, they get down the road a little bit, and he unlocks her chains, and he says to her, you're free. She, just, she doesn't even have a category for this. And she's kind of like, what, what, do, what do you mean? you mean? You mean I can go anywhere that I want? You mean I can do whatever I want with my life? And he says, yes, you're free. And she looks at him and she says, then I'll go with you. Right. You see, because she was so grateful for what this man had done for her, she freely wanted to be with him and to follow him and to serve him. That's how it is with us as Christians. Jesus Christ has given us such an amazing gift, our freedom from sin and death and, and eternal life, that if you really know Him, if you've really experienced that grace, you'll want to follow Him and obey Him. Right? It is love and grace that enables obedience. Right? We generally think it's obedience that then unlocks and enables God's grace. That's religion. That's wrong. It is God's grace and love that then changes us and enables our obedience. You've got to get the order right. And that is what the law is now for. Grace transforms the law for us as Christians. Grace doesn't do away with the law, right? It's not just gone. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not trying to get rid of it. Paul says the law is good in Romans 7. And this then is the, the third use of the law, right? Here's the third use of the law, the, the moral use, right? Once we are saved, once we are no longer under the law, now that Christ has removed the curse of the law, we are now free to use the law correctly. The law shows us how to live in a way that pleases God. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen, to do that, we got to know what the commandments are. Like you gotta, I can't keep his commandments if I don't know what they are. Right? That's what the law is for. Right? Think of it like a train. Right? We've got the train tracks, right? The law is the tracks. It's, it's the rails, right? It, it provides the, the parameters. The law is the guidelines, the, the standards, and, and it shows us where we need to go, right? But listen, a train just sitting on the tracks, right? The tracks have no power in themselves to get the train where it needs to go, right? The law is just the guideline, right? Grace is the steam or the coal or the electricity or whatever it is that powers the train and actually makes it go. You've got to have both. You've got to have the law and you've got to have grace that is empowering us and actually making the change and enabling us to do it. Right? Tracks, law, power, grace. And Jesus tells us in our passage, he says, love God and love others. The law tells us how to do that. Right? Grace empowers us, and then the law informs and, and guides our love. Right? Does that make sense? This is kind of some real heavy kind of theological lifting that we're getting into here. Right? This is the importance of the law. Just the one thing to remember, I guess, is keep the order correct. Right? The scribe comes to Jesus thinking law first, then grace. Right? The gospel is grace first, then law. The, the scribe thought we act first, then God responds. The gospel is that God acts first, and then we respond. William Wilberforce, um, he is a, a very important man. Go read about him. Um, he, he led the abolition movement of slavery in Britain decades before um, we figured it out um, here in, in America. But he, was, he was a Christian and wrote a book on doctrine, and he writes this. He, he wrote, The Christian knows, therefore, that his, this holiness is not to precede his reconciliation to God and be its cause, but to follow it and to be its effect. Right? He says, keeping the rules and goodness and holiness doesn't 
come first and calls our reconciliation to God, right? No, God's grace comes first and that causes right, the holiness and our ability to follow the law. We've got to get the order right. Grace always comes first. So, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I do not want you walking out of here thinking, well, I need, I need a better job obeying the, the greatest commandment. I don't know. I want you to realize how helpless that you are to obey the greatest commandment. And because of that realization, I want you to then look to the grace of God displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners. That's how you get saved. The grace and the mercy of God. But if you are here and you are already a believer, I want to honestly ask you, how are you doing with this commandment? Are you loving God supremely? more than anything else, more than even yourself, and are you doing it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now again, I don't want to use this as like this bully kind of thing to like beat you down like, oh man, oh, I can't, you know, I can't do this perfect. None of us will do this perfectly in this life. None of us will, right? But if we have been saved, right, then, then we have been set free from the curse of the law, then we have now at least been enabled to start loving God more and more like this. That's what sanctification is. It's, it's a process, and, and sometimes it's slow, but it's always moving in the direction of God. Is God the center of your life? Seriously, think about it. Do you love and delight in God? Faith is not supposed to be some chore, right? This is not supposed to be some, some tedious burden. Like, oh, you know I guess I guess I need to read the Bible today. Um, I, I can sleep. Uh, I'll drag myself out to church. And kind of, oh, this is important. And it's just like this bore, this, this chore over and over and over again. No, do you find actual joy and peace from your relationship with God? That's just a simple question. Do you find joy and peace from it? Be honest with yourself. Because listen, it's a relationship with a person. Listen, when I met Melissa like six years ago, right, it wasn't like, Okay, I'll spend a little time with her. Oh, maybe I'll, I'll talk with her a little bit. I feel like I, I probably should. Kind of. No, listen, I met her on one day, and on the next day I had stalked her and figured out where she was going to be, and I went and hung out with her. Uh, it was a group of, it wasn't that creepy, Facebook, I promise. Right? And then, you know, the rule was like, oh, you know, three days. and kind of, No, I called her the next day and said, hey, do you want to go to a basketball game tomorrow? No, like, once I, I saw her and knew her, and I, I, I wanted to be with her whenever I could. Right? I just wanted to be in her presence. I wanted to, to hear her voice and to talk with her. She brought me joy and delight. I just wanted to do everything that I could to be with this woman. Right? And don't take dating advice from me. I did it completely wrong. It is solely by the grace of God that she, I somehow tricked her or something. But, but the point is, right, this is a relationship with this woman, with my wife. Right? right? If it was just this chore, this burden, like, I'm going to go put in my time and do. No, listen, my, my goal and my desire is, is for Melissa to be the center of everything that I do. Right? I, I, don't, I don't do that very well. I don't, I don't serve her and love her as well as I should. But the point is, is that I'm, if I'm in a relationship with her, right, that relationship brings me joy and delight. It's not just a chore or something that I have to force myself to do. Right? Is your relationship with God something that you enjoy? And something that brings you delight and joy. Right? That's what it's supposed to be. It's not just supposed to be misery and difficult and, and painful. Right? The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You don't need to know what that is. It's just kind of this important summary of the faith from a few hundred years ago. But the very first important question that opens that, this, this document says, What is the chief end? I mean, it's purpose. What is the chief end or purpose of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God. Good, we all get that. But the next part is, and to enjoy Him forever. Both, right? Both of these things. It's not just one or the other. But what, what does that even mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, it just means to give God what is rightfully His, right? Which is glory. It is honor and praise and preeminence. We, we glorify God by loving Him and praising Him and thanking Him and obeying Him. We, we glorify Him by putting Him at the very center of everything that we do, right? But what we so miss sometimes is that doing that is supposed to bring us joy. We're supposed to enjoy it. 
right? It's supposed to just unleash this, this great contentment and happiness in life. Listen, I'm not telling you the law. People hear law and they think, well, you know, I can't have sex and I can't watch certain movies and I can't, all these limits and constraints and man, this sounds so boring and so miserable. No, listen, the law is given to us by God who designed the universe and set it up to work in a certain way. And the law itself is grace. It is God coming to us and saying, this is how to, to, to flourish and to thrive in my creation. This is how to enjoy me. This is how, he, he's saying, People hate the church today because they're like, oh, you guys are anti-sex. And these you guys are, oh, you're so boring and you're, you're prudes. No, we have God coming to us and telling us how sex works the best. Right? He's saying you will destroy yourself if you just enjoy it everywhere with everyone all the time. Right? It'll kill you. He says, but if you enjoy it in the context of marriage, if you use it correctly, how it was designed, it's so much better, he says. He, he's telling us through the law how to have joy and delight and to experience God's goodness, right? Are you enjoying God? Right? Do you delight in God and in His Word? Listen, if you don't, and listen, we all go through periods where we don't, right? There are always times where like, I just, I'm going to read the Word even though I don't want to right now, right? That is, that is normal. That happens. But if that's the case all the time, you need to examine why, right? Do you love and enjoy God? And if you don't, you know, how do you do it? What do you, what do you do? And this is going to sound like a cop-out, but, but I'm serious. The answer is very simply, it's the gospel, right? The way, the only way to keep the law and enjoy God is to first realize that you don't have to keep the law to enjoy God. Got it? For salvation purposes. The only way to be able to keep the law is to first realize that you don't have to keep the law to be saved. Because Jesus kept it for you. Right? Dwelling on and embracing the truth that God accepts us apart from good works is the very thing that causes us to begin to pursue and excel in good works. Right? It is love motivated. Love and grace are the only thing that will motivate you to change. Right? That's the only way it will happen. So you, you, you dwell and you look and you cry out to God for grace. You, you, you see what he has done for you on the cross, and that, that sets you free. Right? When someone serves you in an amazing way, right, you, you just, you're excited, and you want, to, you want to thank them, you want to, you want to do something for them. You, you begin to love them even more. Right? That's how change happens. That's how the gospel happens. Right? When we see what God has done for us, and rescuing us, and saving us, and we, we rest in that, and we begin to delight that, and then the change starts to happen. Right? But we haven't even looked at the rest of the passage. Um, all right. We're going to do it for briefly, just a second. Um, all right. The scribe comes to Jesus. Hey, what's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus does him one better, and he gives him the two greatest commandments. Verse 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. Right? Those are the two commandments that are greater than every other commandment. In the same passage in Matthew 22, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? And that's just, that means the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible. The entirety of Scripture, the whole law, depends on the commands to love God and love each other. Everything else could be summarized in those two laws. And the Ten Commandments, they, it breaks down into two tables themselves. You got the first four commandments are about our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. The second six commandments are about our relationship with each other, the, the horizontal relationships, the second great commandment. Did you guys have that growing up, that little cliche um, that, we, that, I, that we had in my church growing up, joy, all caps, J-O-Y, you guys know what that was? Joy is, is Jesus, others, you. That's actually pretty good. I mean, that, really, that's, that's, that's the first two great commandments. The first one, love God, that's Jesus. The second one, love others, that's the O. And then you get to yourself. Right? God first, then others, then yourself. Love your neighbor. But again, what does that even mean? Right? We, we just throw around the word love. Oh, I love you. I love, I love sandwiches. And I, you know, we lose love for all kinds of, of different things. But what is love? It's surprisingly difficult to define. I just go ask a friend after the service. Don't let them use my answer. Or someone that's not here, like, oh, you know, hey, what is love? All right? You'll get all kinds of weird, crazy answers. And that's because our culture today so gets love just completely wrong, right? Love is just this, it's this mushy just feeling, 
Right? Love is just, it's just affection. It is, it is emotion. It, it's just something that, that happens to us. Oh, I was just love at first sight. I couldn't help it. Right? You're just kind of overwhelmed with this feeling of, of love. It's very romantic and it's very sentimental. Right? You'll notice that as that's this definition of love has shifted in our society, right? Notice the, the corresponding state of marriage in our culture, right? There's, these two things are related. As we've redefined and just perverted what love is, marriage is just falling apart, right? Because we're not doing love as love is supposed to be, right? This is not what the Bible defines love as. And listen, you're going to laugh at me, but I'm being completely serious here. I'm being completely serious. If you want to better understand a biblical definition of love, Go watch the Disney movie Frozen. I'm completely serious. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I, I just watched it. Melissa made me. And I was absolutely blown away. Right? That movie is an amazing picture of the gospel. Right? If you watched that movie and you didn't catch the gospel in it, go back because you weren't paying attention. I want to do a whole sermon on the movie because it's so, it's so, it's brilliant, right? The, listen, the theology and understanding of the gospel is far better in Frozen than it is in all those cheesy Christian movies, right? It, it gets the gospel a lot uh, more clearly than they do. And I don't have time to get into it, but for our purposes, I want to talk about one little thing from the movie because there's this girl, she's the, the main character, um, I can't remember her name, what's the main character's name? What? Anna? Anna. Okay, Anna. She's cursed, basically, right? She's, she's, what? That's Elsa. See? Come on, guys. That was your fault. Right. Elsa. Right. Elsa's the main character. Right. And she, she, she falls under this, this curse. And, you know, if it's cursed, she's going to die. Curse is not good. Um, so she's going to die. And she's told, she says, this, this troll says to her, ignore that part, says, only an act of true love can fall a frozen heart. Right? Only an act of true love can save your life. Right? That's, that's what the movie's about. But since it's a Disney movie, what happens, right? Just like any other Disney movie, they, they rush off, they're going to find true love's first kiss. Right? This is it. It'll be, it'll be the kiss. I've got to find Prince Charming. I need to be fulfilled in the love of this prince and this, this man. Romantic love will do it. Right? It's just like every other princess movie. Right? So I keep Emma away from most of them because the message behind most of them is awful. But the message behind Frozen is fantastic. Because Frozen is brilliant because it's not like every other princess movie. It's not romantic love. It's not the kiss that does it. I was, just, I was blown away, right? It doesn't do it. And then when, when Elsa, and when she realizes it, when she realizes that it's not the kiss, it's not this, this Prince Charming that's going to save her and fulfill her, she's distraught. She, she, she doesn't know what to do. And she cries out. She says, I don't even know what love is. Are you ready for this? Her stupid little character friend, he's a snowman, but he's brilliant. He's brilliant, apparently. Here's the answer. She says, I don't even know what love is. And he says, that's okay. I do. He says, love is putting someone else's needs before your own. That's it. That's exactly right. That is the biblical definition of love. Right? Love is not a romantic sappy kind of feeling of, of affection. No, love is, is the desire for and then the intentional choice to seek the good of whatever it is you have set your love upon. Right? Love is seeking the good of the loved. Right? It is not abstract, nebulous feeling. It is action. It is putting your wants and your desires and your own good aside for the sake of seeking the good of the loved. Right? So love, according to the Bible, and according to Frozen, is service. Right? Love is acting and choosing and working for the benefit of whoever you choose to love. That's why marriage is falling apart. Right? Because love, we've said, it, oh, it's just emotion and feeling. Listen, those emotions and feelings, they ebb and flow sometimes. So if you don't have the correct definition of love, oh, well, the feeling's gone. I have to go find it somewhere else. But if you understand that love is, is serving the one that you have committed to loving, right, then even when there's these ebb and flows and these difficulties, love doesn't change at all. Because love is simply your commitment to pursue the good of that other person. That's it. That's what love is. And we talked about it back in Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Right? As Christians, we are called, we're commanded, actually, to love others by serving 
then. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Right? That's love. Right? Philippians 2, 3-4 says, In humility, count, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen, I struggle with this, because I am just a sinful, arrogant person, and my tendency is just to count my significance a lot higher than everyone else. Right? I, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to deal with me and what I need over here, and just I'm not going to worry about that. Right? I, I, my, my natural bent is to consider myself the most significant. Up front, they're all listening to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the most significant one, right? Obviously, no. That's that's my sinful, arrogant pride. My my heart kind of lashing out after me. No, Paul says, count yourself at the very bottom, and everyone else more significant than you. That is a really hard thing to do, but that is what we are called to do. First Corinthians ten twenty four says, let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. As followers of Christ, we are, by definition, servants. Right? Christ did not live his life for himself, but for us. We too, then, are called not to live our lives for ourselves, but for others. And this, again, this is just a challenging word for me, because I'm, I am such a selfish person. Right? Are you living your life for yourself, or are you living it for others? It's that simple. Answer the question. Who are you living your life for? And I think it is safe to say that we all need growth and God's grace in this area. We are commanded first to love God, and one of the primary ways we do this is by loving and serving others. Are you doing that? And again, I'm terrible at managing time. Look at the last few verses real quick, three verses. Let me just explain why these are after what we just talked about. Right? Remember, everyone is just, everyone's been shut up. They're dumbfounded. They, they have no more questions. They're, they're done asking questions because Jesus has just silenced them all. It's now Jesus' turn to ask a much more important question. In the accountant in Matthew, Jesus opens up by saying, what do you think about the Christ? That's the most important question. What do you think about Jesus? He, he's challenging them, right? Look at what he says. He asks them, how can the Messiah be the son of David? This is kind of a little confusing what Jesus is doing here. It's hard to follow. Um, what he does is he quotes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was written by David, right? And David wrote this, and David says, The Lord said to my Lord, he's talking about the Messiah, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Right, the point that Jesus is making is that David here calls the Messiah Lord, right, which means that the Messiah must be something greater and above David. But there, there's actually more to it going on. In the Hebrew, right, you have Lord and Lord, with actually two different words. Right? In Hebrew, when you see Lord in all capital letters, right, that, is, that is Yahweh. Right? That is God's personal Name. It is Yahweh God speaking to not all capital letters, Lord, Adonai. Right? And in the Old Testament, these words are put together a whole lot. You have Adonai, Yahweh, which just means Lord God. And the point is that the word Adonai is usually used of God. Right? God is Adonai. But in Psalm 110, God is speaking to someone else who is Adonai, who is Lord. Right? So what does Jesus say? It's a little, you gotta, you gotta track with it. He, he doesn't fully explain it to them. He, he, he kind of lets them kind of figure out the implications. But what he is doing is he is making an implicit claim to deity. Right? Jesus is claiming that he is God. He says, I am the Lord of David. I am Adonai. And this then is the second reason why the scribe is close, but not in the kingdom. In effect, Jesus is saying here, the most important thing is for you to love God. Oh, and then, by the way, I'm the Lord, I'm God, love me, right? You want to be in the kingdom, you want eternal life, you can't just like the law and appreciate my teachings, you've got to love me and you've got to trust me. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am salvation, I am God. I kept the two greatest commandments for you because you failed so miserably to do it yourself. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit, give up trying to keep all the rules to save yourself and come to me. It's just, it's beautiful. Jesus is at the center of everything. 
Right? The scribe was looking for an answer. What is the most important commandment? How, how do I be saved? And he was staring into the face of salvation himself. Right? The answer is not a bunch of rules. The answer is a person. Listen, you haven't kept the rules. You, you haven't obeyed the law. You're just not that good of a person. You're, you're not good enough. I'm not either. We're, we're, our good is not nearly as good as we think. Every one of us is already guilty. But the good news is that Christ has kept the law for us. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And then he came back to life, defeating sin and death and freeing us from the curse of the law in the process. Right? Now we're free. Right? Now we are able to begin to imperfectly follow the law and love God and love others. Not to impress God, not to save ourselves, but out of gratitude for what he has done for us. Right? We are called to love others and to love God. But we cannot do it ourselves. We need the grace of God. Right? So the question to leave here chewing on, it's quite, be honest with yourself, you don't have to write it out or tell me, who are you living for? That's it. Who do you love? Is it yourself or is it, or is it God? If Jesus Christ really did all of this for you, if he, if he died for you, if he gave up everything he had to rescue you, then the only logical thing to do is to love him and to serve him. And one of the, the primary ways that we do that is, is, to, is to love and serve other people. Right? Let's, let's close in a word of prayer and ask God to help us um, to do that together as, as a church. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Father, I thank you for how you have challenged and rebuked and corrected me um, through it um, this week. Um, Father, I pray that we will see these two commandments and that we will realize how woefully short we follow them. Father, I have failed to keep the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment um, on timeless occasions. Um, Father, if my standing with you is dependent on how well I do, Father, I have no hope. But Father, we thank you uh, that you made a better way. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to succeed where we failed, to keep the law perfectly where we did not. Father, to die where we should have um, so that we um, could live. Um, Father, we thank you um, for that good news. Father, we thank you that grace comes first. You act first, and then you empower us to act in response. I pray that this would be a church that is marked um, by our love um, for you that then that shows itself in our love and service of each other and of those around us. Father, awaken our dead hearts. Father, forgive us um, for our sins. Father, help us um, to believe and, and to trust and to rest in you, um, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.